You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with some of the team from Reaction. Reaction is a global community and fund invested in solving the toughest global problems. They hope to improve a billion lives within this decade by scaling innovation that changes the world. We sit down and talk about the lessons learned while working 20 plus years at Bloomberg, the origin story of Reaction, stories of being an investment banker through the history of Silicon Valley, investing in the double bottom line, the value of a global network, and much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. I'm very excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Well, one, this is the first time we've had three people on the show, but what they are working on, what they're doing is they are impacted at a global scale. And we're going to learn about that. But before that, Dan, Mike, Julieta? Yes. Can we hear a little bit about everyone's background, everyone's career up until this point before diving into the changes that everyone here is making in the world? Dan, you got the mic. Do you want to start? Sure. Tell us about your career up to this point. Yeah, I came out of uh, Princeton High School and was uh, an East Coast kid. In the college years, I got the travel bug, got to do semesters abroad and spend some time in Australia and France. And so I knew I wanted to explore the world. And after, after high school, after college, which people are very familiar with now, it was a, a much smaller company when I joined. I was there for 21 years in total. And it was quite a magical place because I think it had a lot of the right values uh, around customer service, around innovation. Uh, and one of the most magical things was this unbelievable global network. And I was lucky to be able to be out here in San Francisco, a kid with a dream around building something. And for that dream to be acknowledged and brought and embraced uh, and to have the chance to go out and to build that. And beyond uh, my ambition, what was so special about that was being able to tap into this huge network and just the reputation that Bloomberg had to be able to go out and to talk to the right audiences. And I think that's something I, I learned from and wanted to be able to provide to others. There's incredible people doing incredible things that just need that advantage. And we've thought hard about how to replicate that and make that possible for them. How long were you at Bloomberg for? 21 years. What was it like being at one company for, well, the lifespan of, you know, well, I don't want to say the lifespan, but you know, 21 years, that's in Silicon Valley, I think two years, maybe three years. What was it like being at one company for that long? What changes? And do you have any advice for people that take that career path versus the career path of a startup? It was a great experience. It was a, a great company, but the company changed several times during that period. Mike went and ran the city for 13 years, including the year that he campaigned. And while he was away, we had this effort to create autonomous businesses. And I was uh, lucky enough to be able to build and run one of those, like I said. And you know, they continued to, to open up doors for people like me to be able to do innovative things. I saw myself going from learning about it to being able to to be an execution, be able to give back and kind of teach others. And that process was really valuable, as well as to be able to understand how, how other people approaching this might might be challenged and what struggles they might face and to been there and made those mistakes and to be able to, to help guide people through them. Mike, how about your background? Sean, thanks for having us. 
I came here for the first time 50 years ago as a freshman at Stanford. And it was before, of course, it was called Silicon Valley. But I fell in love with the area so many other people do for non-business reasons, really. And after after I went to work at JP Morgan and then went to graduate school, I came back here and started in investment banking where I worked with uh, technology companies, mostly in Silicon Valley. And by that time it was called Silicon Valley. And I did that for about 20 years. And then I got into what some people call impact investing. We called it double bottom line investing, but social impact investing. And it was actually serendipitously that I got into that, but it worked out extraordinarily well. And the common thread that runs through my career is that I've always worked with entrepreneurs and I've always been inspired by entrepreneurs, particularly social entrepreneurs, which is to say those who are trying to improve society through their businesses. And so that's what we're doing now. So tell me a little bit about 20 years. I mean, I'm seeing a pattern here, of long-term thinking. How did you stay in investment banking for 20 years? And in that 20 years, you had to have, especially Silicon Valley at that time, had to have worked with some just incredible companies. Well, that's true. I did have the privilege of working with uh, many incredible companies, some semiconductor companies, some computer companies, some software companies. Some of the most notable with Dell Computer certainly comes to mind. It's one of the most successful companies of the 90s. So working with people like that was, of course, very inspiring. And then subsequently, as an investor, working with Tesla and Elon Musk was also very inspiring. And even more so, because of course, Tesla not only was a very successful investment, but it catalyzed change in the auto industry when almost no one foresaw that. So that was a, an, another great privilege. Oh, wow. I wonder when you were taking on projects, what was your vetting process? Like, did they have to have that double bottom line for you even to be interested in working with them? Or could they have been any and then you're just most proud of or, or excited about the ones that had that component? Well, in the first 20 years, they did not have to have a double bottom line. In the second 20 years, when I was explicitly an impact investor, yes, they did have to, and they do have to now as we focus on sustainability companies. Oh, fantastic. So yeah, let me share a little bit about my background. I, based on my name, I come from Latin America. I'm from Argentina and I spent all of my time there before coming here to school two years ago. Maybe I can start right at the beginning. I graduated from a local school in Buenos Aires with an international relations bachelor. And then I realized nobody works in international relations in Argentina. So I started working at JP Morgan, first doing research, and then I transitioned to investment banking. And while that was happening, I went back to school. I did my master's in finance. And in that moment, something unbelievable happened, which was somebody that I voted for won for the first time in my life. And so suddenly I needed to be a part of it. It was a market-friendly president after coming out of 12 years of populism. A lot of people were coming back to Argentina to help. And one of them was a friend of mine from JP Morgan. He was working at the Ministry of Finance and he said, do you want to join? And I was immediately. And I spent three years at the government in Argentina. That's where I met my boss, who was a Stanford Graduate School of Business alum. That's how I got to know about Stanford in the first place. And I applied and then I got in and I deferred because of COVID. And I spent a bit of my career at an impact investing fund as well. And then I came here to Stanford and I've been in the Bay for the past two years. I, I just love how that's how you heard about Stanford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they got to work on their brand recognition. I, I mean, well, I, I was a complete outsider when I was back in school. It wasn't an MBA was not what they were promoting us. I was more in an academic pathway and it was mostly PhD schools and mostly in the East Coast. 
So with everyone's background here, two investment bankers, Bloomberg, more or less, how does that background kind of prepare everyone for what they're doing right now? And actually, I mean, Dan, do you want to talk about a little bit what you're doing right now to give context and then we can go from there? Yeah, sure. We four years ago started a firm called Reaction, which is really almost like a movement. And this began with 200 executive uh, leaders on campus at Stanford that first off wanted to continue to learn and stay connected with Stanford with innovation with each other. Second, wanted to to build something together and leverage all of the different talents and access. And third, most important was to do something that had purpose and to tie back to that mission that Stanford has around changing lives and organizations, particularly changing the world. And what was unique about this group was that they were from 50 different countries in every continent, every major financial center. And so you had a lot of perspective on the world, a lot of diverse thinking. And what we came back with was we could take what starts here, elevating the innovations, the, you know, the kids like me that have great ideas that can solve problems differently than others and help to elevate their voices in a way that they're connecting with the different regions and industries that they can impact and to help to scale those and so that more lives are being changed faster. And that was the whole ambition, this new world order, this new world innovation, and to be able to, to help create that, to help foster that. And what we set as a mission, as a measure of success, was to improve a billion lives within this decade by scaling innovations that change the world. And we went out and we invested in a number of climate tech and health tech and ed tech and some Stanford AI plays that were doing some great things to improve society. And proud to say that as a result of that, we'll help to improve at least a billion lives, potentially even exceed that goal. That's incredible. <laughs> okay. So tell me when I'm curious, well, what are some of the key takeaways that difference this approach than, than others? And I'm really curious, help a billion lives. In what way are you helping a billion lives? So we focused on things that are really macro in terms of the problems. One is there's a lot of health problems throughout the world and in the developing countries, even just getting vaccinations or health crisis response, there's heart disease, there's mental health, chronic disease. Each one of these impacts billions of lives. So we tried to focus on solutions to those macro problems that didn't didn't have any borders to them. In more places they could get, the faster they could get, the more lives that they could improve. We also saw climate change increasingly as a problem that was not just impacting impacting uh, all 8 billion people on the planet. But if it persists, if it continues to go, the domino effect on health, on education, on equality will be worse than anything we've ever seen before. And we didn't want that to come into play and not just cause problems, uh, but undo everything that we'd, we'd work towards. So how does, if someone else would like to answer, how does that Stanford ecosystem, how do those connections, how does this web help? And what does it allow that someone that has the same vision someplace else can't do, but because of this group, you're able to? When it comes to the Stanford ecosystem, it's... Because I heard no one knows about it. I heard outside this little bubble, Silicon Valley, the brand's not there yet. <laughs> I think, Mike, you could probably give some perspective on what people don't know about it is how it's developed to what it is today. <laughs> well. There are many factors, but in after World War II, the provost and the president of Stanford, Terman, who was the dean of the School of Engineering, then the provost, and Wally Sterling, the president, aggressively and effectively worked with the private sector and here, which of course was growing at the time, and embraced it. And unlike some of the other highly selective institutions, perhaps those in the East, they were not afraid of working with industry and thought that actually that was a good thing. And so that has continued through today. It originally, a lot of it was 
was funded by the Defense Department of the United States. And many of the companies that uh, grew up first in Silicon Valley were at least in part defense electronics companies. Obviously, then you had Silicon Valley, meaning semiconductor companies, semiconductor equipment companies, the software business, the internet boom, and now sustainability. But that thread of being, of wanting to have an effective partnership between academia and government and the private sector has never changed. And I think the world is better off as a consequence. Juliet, what brought you here and why not go back to Argentina where everyone can say my name in Spanish, Sean, which is the only spot in the world where they can say my name in Spanish. So I love the Argentinian Spanish. For sure. Yeah. So thank you for asking. I think when I started to think about coming to Stanford, I wanted sort of to bridge the gap between two things that I have dedicated my career to, which was my social work at the government and the knowledge that I've gained in finance. And that's how I came with, I came to Stanford with that in mind. And as I told you before, I had to defer my program. And it was by chance that I was connected by one of my friends in the program to this impact investing fund. And so I got to try mirroring those two things for a little while. And then I got the luxury to start thinking, okay, what in the impact space am I passionate about? And it's sort of in hindsight that I was able to connect the dots. I'm a vegetarian and I was reading all the time about food technology here in the Bay. And I was thinking, how am I, how are we going to get people to eat no meat coming from an agribusiness country and thinking, oh, they are creating meat in a lab or they are fermenting proteins. How does that work? And so essentially I came here to actually see that firsthand in the lab so that I didn't have to be reading about it at home. And that's what I've been doing for the past two years. Fantastic. And I'm curious about, I just want to go back to the topic of impact investment, make the difference. How has impact investment changed over these years? I mean, Mike, going back 20 years of investing in impact investment versus now, what has been kind of this evolution? What's changed? And I guess also kind of what would be considered impact investing? Because it almost seems like anything can fit in that category if you're clever with your wording. I think that's true, that it's a term that means different things to different people. To us, what it means is investing in companies that are sustainable and that will improve the sustainability of the planet and that we believe can generate market rates of return. So it is not a substitute for philanthropy the way we invest. So we are looking for, you could say, a double bottom line. It's true that term is vague, but that's the way we define it and and we practice it. Can you provide an example? Well, to me, the, the very best one is Tesla, because that a reason that was so successful. Of course, the entrepreneur is uniquely talented, but also the company took advantage of U.S. Department of Energy loan guarantee program, which in fact, we helped them get the loan guarantee that helped them. And we helped them find their manufacturing facility in the East Bay, the very first one, the former NUMI manufacturing facility. So by working with them, we helped them become successful. Of course, it was more, it became more successful than I even thought that it would be. And of course, now it's an extremely powerful brand. But what is most notable is it has catalyzed change in the world and in the economy in a way that I believe almost no one had anticipated. So with these investments, going back and Dan, Julieta, I'm just kind of curious when you're looking at an investment, so it has to have sustainability, but it's got to have that return. How is that balance? Is it one of those things where, okay, this has a little bit good for the planet, but a lot of return or 
a little bit of return, really good for the planet. How do you look at that balance to say yes or no? Or I guess what I'm trying to say is what's that investment thesis criteria is like this helps 500 million lives and gives us this potential return or huge return helps 100 lives. That's good enough. Like where is that in the investment committee conversations? So I think there's actually three components to it. The next half hour is to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, I think of it in these three C's, right? Uh, there's the capital return. There's the change it can drive. That's potential to drive. But kind of the connective tissue in the middle is the community. And when you say drive the change, well, who needs that change? Who, who can benefit from that? And who can we help? And by connecting those innovators with the different industries or leaders that they can help that's benefiting obviously those innovators and then vice versa you know the companies that have made these commitments that are really thinking about their next generation more sustainable companies and they want to connect with the right innovations and the right founders to do that you're able to create that as well and if that win is there that's what really makes it a ability to not just drive the change but to create the value so is there a certain amount of change that you're looking for or a certain amount of, I guess what I'm trying to say is how big of a change has to be made or potentially made for you to get excited about that project or that, that company? It's a good question because obviously it's such a broad uh, topic, but you know, ultimately it all comes back to emissions. And if the more emissions that something can reduce at scale, think about if you were wildly successful at the end of the decade, what impact would that have on the environment? How much of a reduction or how much of an avoidance or how much of a you know carbon removal could you accomplish if we're able to reach that? And then the question is, well, you know, what's the first milestone towards that number? And do we believe it? You know, Can we help to drive it? Can we see that first milestone coming true? And if not, how can we help to overcome it? And if so, how do we get to that and so that we can drive past it? So say someone comes to you with this, a company. And they say, this company is going to help this many people. Do you then take that and go to this broad network of Stanford alumni go, hey, if we invest in this, who here in this network can help and how are you going to help? Or like, how does that process go from the company reaching out to you reaching out to the network? So quite frankly, the company reaching out to us will understand what their business is. <clears throat> and then we don't want to be a passive investor. We, we want to be a active contributor to their success, to their journey. It's like to say, if you want to share in the reward, you want to, you need to share in the journey towards that reward. As an example, there's a company called Novaloop, which we've looked at and we've both invested in. And they essentially can take plastic garbage and transform it into the highest quality of plastic. And there's a huge upcycle or added value to doing that. But if you look at the plastic problem, there's about 20 times the amount of the all humans combined. There's about 20 times that human weight combined in plastic somewhere on the planet. I mean, it's just such a pervasive problem. And if that continues to persist, and right now there's more and more plastic being made than ever, you have a, a massive problem. So this becomes the ability to be able to make that circular, start taking plastic out of it. And they've built it in a way that it can be scaled and sold at market rates. And there we can see, how can we help to find the right financing for this, the right end customers for this, the right regions for this. It's, it's a very scalable and impactful technology if we can push it into the world. So then question there and feel free anyone to answer. So you're not just writing a check, you're also opening doors and kind of almost given the the path of the company uh, of going this direction or here's some alumni to talk to, they'll open up these channels for you. I mean, how much you know value add is there with this group versus just a check? 
And I think that's the whole point. These founders have a lot, particularly the, the great innovations. They can pick where they're going to take money from. Uh, someone said an entrepreneur who's a great entrepreneur gets to choose who they make rich. And I, I wish like that was that. always the I case, like right? That. That's always the desire. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Why would they pick any any partner? And I think they're really looking for the right partners to be able to drive their business forward. And when you look at a typical VC setup, it's a local setup. And you know, usually they'll have a you know local network and to some extent a national network. The difference, I think, with these climate solutions is that they're very tangible. You know, they're deep tech, they're hard tech. If you put something out into the internet, like we've all gone up in Google and, and Zoom and so forth, and those can just scale through smartphones and the internet. But now the climate tech, something like plastic, or materials or clean energy, you need to go out and be able to talk to the right enterprises that can help be the partners for that. Just like I said, Bloomberg was magical because you could have those conversations with the right enterprises and take an idea from, from the R&D group into the world. They need that same superpower to be able to, to change the world, to drive it. Reaction has to be able to create that advantage. It has to be able to find the right people in the right regions, open those doors, make those introductions, be contributing to the success, to the to the journey, if you will. And so seeing that that evolve isn't going to happen just over the internet, over the ether. It's going to evolve because of opening the right doors at the right time. If I may add, earlier you asked a related question about how do we look at companies as to what's the potential social impact and the potential financial return. We do not view it as a trade-off. No company is going to make a significant impact no matter what their plan is unless it's successful. So there is a lot of time and attention given to impact measurement, which is a good thing and it needs to be done. But at the end of the day, what matters is if it's successful. And so that's why what Dan just described is our unique attempt to help our companies be more successful or as successful as possible. Is there a difference in scaling one of these or growing one of these companies than a different sector? I mean, I'm guessing for a lot of the companies you look at, there's probably a lot more policy, government, rules, regulations for them to scale. Or am I wrong on this? No, you're right on this. It is not unlike healthcare in which the FDA is very important. Medicaid is very important. Medicare is very important. These are all government processes and government money that funds healthcare. Similarly, there are many regulations that affect what we're all trying to do with uh, cleaning up the environment and building a more sustainable world. So it is in most cases essential that a company work closely with government policy and seek to take advantage of all the programs that exist. And there are many, whether it's in the Department of Energy or the Department of Agriculture, the state of California has a lot of money available. And many of our companies have received grant money or loan money from the state as well, which is good. Then the reason that this money exists is to try to help the companies that we also are funding. Is there any research done into these grants, into these government programs, what they could fund before investing in a company? What I mean by that is at any time, is there the thought of there's this money on the side that's allocated this problem. We have this company here. If we put our money in and then their money, the likelihood of success is so much greater. Or we want to invest in this because we also know there's this huge pool of non-dilutive funds over here to really grow this company that we've put a check in. Yes, definitely. One of the advantages that social purpose companies have is that there is money available, generally speaking, from governments at several levels and from philanthropy to help fund those companies and help them become successful. We haven't heard from you in a while. Tell us a little bit about after your involvement with the companies, how hands-on do you get? 
For sure. Well, I'm the newest addition to the fund. I just graduated from my MBA. And so uh, what I'm planning Congratulations. on doing, Thank you so much. When did you graduate? On June. June? Yes. <laughs> I hear the fund is just now taking off. <laughs> yeah. So I actually want to be the person that is on campus, actually entrenched, understanding all of these opportunities that we want to source, not only for ourselves, but also for our network. This week, we have been talking about what that effort would look like. And we were thinking, yes, there are some opportunities that we want to seek out for ourselves, but also we have a great network of partners and people that we know, and maybe something doesn't fit our criteria, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to be that agent that is helping connect all the efforts that are happening in Stanford with other sources of capital that might be better for them. As I told you, I have a background in investing and also in the government, and I've seen how it's critical for companies to get adequate financing for their success. So what I want to be is that person that can help them be connected to the best source of capital, not just us, but actually the best that's out there here in the Bali. Coming from Argentina, the view of the world versus Silicon Valley, Stanford, is there a difference when viewing ESG, a difference in viewing environmental impact in that between the two cultures? I'm just curious. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I would say there's a huge difference because the conversation is very early stage in Latin America in, in general, but in Argentina in particular. And a lot of the things that are being worked on here regarding climate, maybe in Argentina, we don't get the luxury to think about that much because as you might know, or people that are here, there's chronic macroeconomic conditions. And so if you go into every household, that takes priority versus thinking about, for example, composting your food or other types of practices that are that either involve behavioral change to the individual. So I would say the conversation is completely different. And one of the reasons why I'm also staying here is to take advantage of this flourishing environment. So I want to Double click on that. I'm going to challenge you. For sure. So you just mentioned in some countries that might have macroeconomic issues or, or may not have been some struggles yeah. that the environmental um, impact might be a second thought. What about all these emerging countries, Africa, Southeast Asia, and that huge populations? I'm guessing a lot of what you're working on is going to impact them maybe even more than in other parts of the world. So how does the collaboration go when it's not the primary thought, but it's something that can impact them so much and it's something you want to help bring that technology to that area? How do those conversations go? And sorry is a long question. No, there. for sure. Happy to take it. And afterwards, if you want to compliment as well. But from my experience coming from an emerging market, when I say that the conversation is not priority, I mean, like at the policy level here, there was a lot of discussion about IRA. And when I think about the conversation back home is still around like some basic things that maybe in the US have been already solved. It's not that climate is not taking priority so map around the world because of course it is. It's just at the government level and tying it back to what Mike was saying about how important it is the work that some of the companies here can do with government loans or other government programs. That is I would say not common in other countries. That is why also this community is so relevant for us because sometimes what is not available from the government standpoint can be available from the private sector. And I've seen the enormous community that Dan has here created and it's people from more than 50, 60 countries. And so we can get perspectives from everywhere. I am giving you my perspective from Argentina. So probably people from other regions have also complementary perspectives. 
I mean, I was just thinking that when you're talking about the network, I'm almost thinking the the Stanford alumni are the government, are the private for <laughs> I mean, I, the amount of control or uh, influence I would think the alumni group has globally probably is pretty much second to none, I would gather. I mean, granted, a lot of people still haven't heard of the, the school, but I would think through this network, you're probably one or two degrees separation from pretty much any decision maker. Is that almost a, a fair thing to say? It's very true. I mean, I've traveled to 73 countries now and I've seen Stanford really represented throughout the world. And I was lucky enough to do my MBA at Wharton. Why uh, did you do an MBA at Stanford after already doing one at Warren? I started my MBA in my 20s, finished my 30s. And this was a perfect experience to have, having that opportunity to really build and lead a business within Bloomberg. And after doing that, it was about what can you do next in your life that's also giving back. And I would say Wharton was an incredible experience. And there's a lot of coaching on how to get to the the right answer. And as very finance focused, economics, statistics, finance, accounting, and so forth. And what was different about Stanford instead of right answer, it was training towards the right mindset. And when you're anywhere in the world and you're working with different Stanford alumni or here in the Bay Area, you have that shared mindset. And that mindset is what's created this ecosystem that's so unique and so powerful and so proven in terms of the innovations that can come out of here. But you're right. You have that ability to extend that ecosystem anywhere into the world. There's an expression that you probably have seen uh, on campus, fear the tree, you know, which is basically, uh, we're here to beat you. We're here to beat the competition. We have our school rivalries and we want to see, see Stanford win. I like to say after after the experience at campus, expression needs to build the forest and to be able to bring those trees together, to create that ecosystem, just like a forest where anything that's inside of it is better off because of the collective uh, benefits versus being independent and being away from it. And that's effectively what we're trying to do is to stitch together these incredible people, like you said, that have a tremendous amount of influence, but also have that mindset and that belief that you can do well by doing good and that the collective effort towards that is going to be more powerful than what any person could have done on their own. Okay. Now I'm really curious. Can you share maybe each person or, or an example of a company that you've invested in or worked with and the problem they're solving and that technology that's exciting you? I can share about a company that I worked for part-time during my time in school. And as I was telling you, it allowed me to see one of the things that I was reading back at home to see it firsthand. And it's keeping the name of the company aside. It's they're trying to grow animal protein inside a plant. So it's bringing back the genetically modified conversation to the table again to how to understand, well, where can we continue to grow protein that is feeding the world in a more sustainable way? And I am very excited about that conversation as I've shared before, not only because I am vegetarian, but also because I think, okay, we have a growing population. How are we going to feed this population? And it's only by using these types of technology that we are going to be able to serve the world world in a sustainable way. It's not that we are going to move away from everything that we've done so far, but yes, it's about incorporating like new types of technology. So essentially in very broadest terms, the way in which it works is they replicate the DNA from the protein and they make it grow in the soybean. And after that, they harvest it. And then it's about separating the soy protein and within the soy protein, also the protein from the, in this case, the animal that they were, they were trying to grow and and then once you have that creating the final product so probably i butchered it but that is my <laughs> interpretation and that is a sector that they already know i'm very bullish about oh fantastic yeah mike 
Uh, well, we're very excited about a company that we're about to invest in, which is one of the leading factors in renewable energy credit and carbon credit trading. They also have a significant consulting and or service business in which they work with many major corporations who, of course, most are concerned about reducing their carbon footprint and, and becoming cleaner companies. So I'm very happy we're investing in this because I think I wish that we had a carbon tax. I think we should have a carbon tax, but we don't have one. The closest thing we have to that represents economic value is carbon and renewable energy and other credit trading. And so while it is not a perfect solution, I believe that it is a market-based piece of the solution. So I'm thrilled that we are working with them. And through the Reaction Global Network, we are going to seek to build the company around the world. They already have international business, but of course, we're going to try to accelerate it as well as we will uh, help them with financing alternatives going forward. And we have a very good relationship with them and they're excited about our contributing. And so are we. So is this kind of like a stock exchange for carbon exchange or? Y yes, it's like that. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Dan, do you got one? Yeah. I'm going to give you another plastic one, but I think we should replace the earlier one because this one's a better fit, okay. if that's allowed. Go for it. Just to talk about plastic for a, a second, it's a an enormous problem. And when we talk about uh, climate change being the number one threat to health, a lot of that's pollution. And a lot of that pollution is driven by plastic, part because as you're manufacturing the plastic, you're creating emissions. Then as it goes into a landfill and breaks down over four to 500 years, that's where you're seeing these particles increasingly come into the food system, into the water system, even into the air that we breathe. There's an increasing number of these microparticles. And just to give you a you know context, the, uh, the amount of plastic that's been created since it became popular in the 50s is about 20 times the combined weights of all humans on the planet today. It's massive. And it's accelerating in terms of the amount that's created. And so something has to be done. Another problem is methane. And as methane can be 20 to 80 times as harmful to the environment as carbon, it's not as talked about as much, but it's an enormously difficult problem. Um, and so we invested in a company that's sequestering methane in the process of creating their biodegradable plastic. And they're able to you know, create that plastic in a way that's carbon negative because of the methane sequestration. Essentially, they've piped themselves into a wastewater treatment plant. They're then feeding that methane to bacteria called methanites, or the name that eats the methane, that then multiply, expand, and die off. And after washing away the membranes, what's left of this white goopy paste that can be dried and compressed into the plastic pellets used to create clothing, biodegradable soap dishes. And most recently, they won the contract with Allbirds, which many people here in the Valley are familiar with, for the first net zero shoe, being able to take a negative, a carbon negative component to offset anything that's positive to have a net zero result for the first time. What we would love to see is for this type of technology to be able to scale the trillions and trillions of pounds of plastic that are there and being created. It's a it's such an enormous problem that you need to be able to see this technology replicated, which their strategy is somewhat similar to what I like to think of as the Coca-Cola bottling strategy of being able to prove its efficacy and to, to commercialize it in its first plant, and then to be able to license that all throughout the world, which is where reaction can help most of opening up doors in all different places. There's an abundance of methane in the world. There's uh, you know an abundance of this bacteria. And so the ingredients are there. The desire for people to have biodegradable plastic instead of keep on backfilling and piling on literally to this landfill problem that we have is there. And it's just about being able to turn that into a an option to create that plant, to be able to create that manufacturing capability to start distributing stuff that's going to be positive in terms of the impact of the planet and 
biodegradable, not adding to the landfill as it's been done over the past seven decades. That's just really interesting. A net zero product. Do you think that's going to, I don't know, I'm not sure how far in the future, 10, 20, 30. Do you think that will almost become like a standard or maybe like some buildings have the LEED certification, but the net zero product certification for companies? I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you see the evolution, how the ESG is going to evolve over the next five, 10 years before, before wrapping it up? So it's a really good question, Sean, because Zulieta mentioned people are not likely to change behavior at a total population level. It might be a small percentage that really go out of their way to do things that are contributing, but we need to be able to have the products and the activities that people do today done in the same way out the impact to the environment. Like Mike brought up Tesla and being able to drive without creating emissions or being able to eat without uh, having a carbon footprint. Things like clothing, for example, need to be done in a zero carbon fashion, pun intended, and people are not going to change their desire for great looking fashion. You don't want to look at this goofy clothes that you look ridiculous in just to say, hey, this is biodegradable. It's got to be something that looks awesome, feels awesome, and is good for the planet and is affordable. And you're not paying a fortune just to be able to have that that sense. So good looking clothes at the same price. That's what's going to solve the problem. So then wrapping it up, what's one takeaway that you want our listeners to to think about going forward? I'd say there's such an opportunity at this point, a bigger opportunity than's ever existed before for local innovators, whether they're here at Stanford or anywhere at the world, to be able to change the world, to be able to have these superpowers around ecosystem, around policies that are there, around tapping into global networks like Reaction that can take these incredible ideas and execution efforts and turning it into something that's a, a true world-changing innovation. Mike, Julieta, anything to add? I'll simply add that I think it's a privilege to do what we do, which is to try to help address the huge problem that is so evident all around us of global warming and all of the environmental problems that we have. And I want to encourage everyone else to find a way to get involved with addressing the same problem. And you asked me before why I stayed here. And I think if I can have like three things that can summarize it also is as a Latin woman, I know that starting lines matter, but don't define where I'm going. As a woman in finance, as I told you, I know that you need adequate funding for success. And as a vegetarian, I want to help leverage our planet's resources for to sustain the population. So the reason I'm staying here and the reason I think Reaction is the best place to do it is because I want to help those entrepreneurs doing do it. And as we shared during this episode, I think we have assembled an amazing community around the world that can help scale what is already being created. So I'm extremely excited about that opportunity. All right. And if anyone wants to find out more information, what's the best way to go about doing it? Probably best to visit our website, which is just reaction.global. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to have that information in the show notes. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And I want to thank all our guests today for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.